Tonight we are resuming our series, Eschatology and the Antichrist, and we're talking tonight about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And um, I have but time this evening to survey very quickly what is the most in-depth chapter of my book, Man of Sin. And if you want to uh, go back afterwards and read this section uh, that covers the same material, it's pages 89 to page 115. There's a lot of exegetical material here, and I have time uh, to but skim it tonight. So uh, a lot of the points I'm making, I am assuming, and uh, I argue for their truth in the book, and so you'll have to uh, do a little more reading there if you want to uh, kind of follow my argumentation as I flesh that out a bit. Now, as we work through this particular section of eschatology and this uh, third aspect of this composite photograph that we've been calling the Antichrist, I think it's vital again that we identify our presuppositions about the book of Revelation. I think this is very, very vital uh, to do. Now, we have to understand John's vision of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet against the backdrop of those God-hitting empires of the Old Testament. Uh, The images we're going to find throughout the book of Revelation are drawn largely right out of the Old Testament. And I'm of the belief that if you were in one of these seven congregations in Asia Minor in the first century, and the book of Revelation was read aloud to you, you would get the symbols very quickly because you would be saturated in the Old Testament and know exactly what John was talking about. And I think part of the reason Revelation is difficult for us is that we don't assume right away that an image in Revelation is drawn from the Old Testament, and we need to start If you've read any of G.K. Beale's uh, commentary in the book of Revelation, just flip to the back of that, you'll see literally hundreds of citations or allusions, what theologians call echoes, in the book of Revelation drawn from the Old Testament. And so if Revelation then uh, has that kind of a structure, when we talk about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, then we're talking about things that occurred in the Old Testament. Uh, This just doesn't pop into uh, history in a vacuum. Those Jews knew the Old Testament, knew the story of Pharaoh who held the people of God in captivity, who prevented them from going out into the wilderness to worship Yahweh, who forced them to make bricks without a sufficient straw. They knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And so in Revelation chapter 13, we read about this image. If you know the Old Testament, you go right back to the book of Daniel and you know that Nebuchadnezzar had made an image of himself And the three young men refused to bow down and worship it. So, get in your mind then that as you work through the book of Revelation, whenever you're reading a passage and it just sounds weird, the solution isn't some weird interpretation and trying to tie that to modern technology. Um, The solution is Old Testament. Um, Locusts, my favorite example in the book of Revelation. Uh, Hal Lindsey thinks that John was trying to foretell some future technology, and he saw helicopters in his vision. And so since he didn't know what a helicopter was, well, if you look at a a, a Bell Huey helicopter, it kind of looks like a locust. So Lindsay will say then, John was describing this future technology that he could... No, 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 no. The book of Joel. Locusts come, and what do they do? They eat everything. And in the ancient world, when locusts come... 
people die because they eat the plants down to the ground and the animals and people starve to death because the locusts wipe... It's a judgment motif. The same with scorpions. Uh, there's, a, there's a great quote from Lindsay talking about a scorpion being a, a helicopter with nerve gas. And it was like the scorpions... It just goes, you could just goes on and on and on and on and on. So get in the habit then of hearing the language in the book of Revelation and saying, what does that have to do with the Old Testament? Well, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You've got Nebuchadnezzar. You've got Pharaoh. You've got Nimrod. You've got all these images from the Old... That's where you should, should start to set your, your default. Right there. Go back to the Old Testament. Look, for, look at these. Now, point number two in terms of our presuppositions. I think it's very clear that the book of Revelation is in a sense a divinely given commentary on the Old Testament. Remember in the latter chapters of Daniel, especially Daniel 12, after the end of those visions, Daniel is told to do what with the vision? Roll it up, seal it up. But in Revelation 5 and 6, when John is taken up into heaven and sees the Lamb, the Lamb does what to that same vision? He breaks the scroll and the vision thematically unfolds in John's vision. So, that tells us right away that Revelation then is going to sum up all of those threads left open-ended throughout the Old Testament. Revelation is, in a sense, a divinely given commentary. All those threads in redemptive history that still haven't yet been tied together, and that's what John's vision does. John's vision is not Nostradamus. It's not predicting specific future events. It's predicting specific theological events that tie together all of these Old Testament threads and themes. So think of the Old Testament then as incomplete. The book of Revelation uh, is a divinely given commentary on that. One of the places where you can see the difference between Reformed amillennialism and dispensationalism is at this very point. I grew up on John Walvoord's commentaries on Daniel and the book of Revelation. And his book on Daniel is called Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. That's exactly backwards because the book of Revelation tells me what Daniel meant. You can't work from Daniel forward as dispensationalists do and say, understanding Daniel enables us to understand Revelation. No, 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 no. Revelation fills in all of those things left open-ended in Daniel and Daniel was told to seal all that up until the time of the end and in John's vision, John opens this now, the Lamb opens it so, and John describes it for us. So, we need to see Revelation then as the uh, capstone on top of the foundation of the Old Testament. A third presupposition, I think this is very important when we talk about uh, Antichrist and events in the book of Revelation. Contemporary events at the time when John recorded this vision have to be kept in view. In Revelation 1.3, you know, John is pretty clear here, I'm writing about things that are soon to come to pass. Now, that doesn't sound to me like John's much of a futurist. And John's saying, I'm writing to you seven churches in Asia Minor, but I'm really writing to Christians living thousands of years later at the end of time. You think this letter's to you, but boy, it's really to the Christians living at the end. They'll, no, 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 no. This is a letter written to the seven persecuted churches mapped out in, in the opening chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. If you take a, a map of Asia Minor and follow those cities, this is right on the postal route, as it were. A courier would have carried that epistle just one, they're right in a row, right in order. 
This letter is written to the seven historic churches. And what is hanging over this uh, book of Revelation as John records this vision? There is a, uh, a shadow lurking everywhere over the book of Revelation. And that shadow is the Roman Empire and its emperor. And two specific emperors come to mind. One is Nero and the other is the contemporaneous emperor Domitian. So we have to keep all that in mind. Uh, John is talking about uh, uh, the Old Testament. He's, he, the vision is basically summa, uh, uh, summarizing the Old Testament, tying up these loose ends. But also contemporary events are in view and John is writing to those seven churches, not to uh, churches at the end of the time. Now, a couple of things we have to keep in mind here. This includes the rise of an imperial emperor cult. Um, and that emperor cult involved three very specific individuals. There are many more, but the three that I think we want to identify. Uh, Caligula, Emperor Gaius, uh, 40 A.D., is the first to identify himself as a deity. He is the son of the gods. And he's the... Uh, Caligula, of course, as you know, is known for his uh, orgiastic behavior, his licentiousness. Um, he's the one who tried to put an image of himself up in the Jerusalem temple to humiliate the Jews. Herod Agrippa talked him out of it, according to Josephus. Uh, Nero, as we'll see momentarily, is perhaps um, the epitome of evil. Uh, it's difficult to find anybody in the history of Western civilization that uh, surpasses Nero for personal depravity. Uh, nobody close that I know of. And then Domitian, who is the uh, emperor at the time that John writes this letter, I think in AD 95, and under Domitian, you not only have emperor worship come into full flower, you now have this persecution that began in Rome under Nero now extend to the ends of the empire. And Domitian is much more aggressive in his attempts to silence Christianity and persecute Christians than Nero ever. Nero was nutty. Nero hated Christianity. Nero's actions are pretty much limited to Rome. But under Domitian, this hatred of Christianity now begins to come to full flower. And as we'll see, Domitian is a much more aggressive individual uh, in terms of his empire, uh, his visions of empire, especially in Asia Minor. He's much more aggressive in attacking churches uh, throughout the empire. And these men consider themselves to be deities, and under their watch, uh, we see an open persecution of Christians. Now, the historical situation depicted in Western Asia Minor uh, and not Rome best fits the time of the latter part of the first century under Domitian. This is the late date for the book of Revelation. I disagree with those preterists who argue that Revelation was written before AD 70. I think the situation depicted in this letter is much more likely later, uh, much more likely under Domitian. And we're going to talk about that in detail next time. I think it's important, since preterists get all the uh, press of late, and since there's so much interest in, uh, among uh, Reformed Christians in this early date for Revelation, I think it would be a good idea to spend some time next week and just, just basically go through and well, what is the case then for uh, a later date for the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about that next time. The next presupposition we have to keep in mind is that the book of Revelation is written to seven historic churches in Asia Minor. These are mentioned in chapters 2 to 3. And a lot of what's described here in Revelation 13 and again in Revelation 17 is already going on in the day-to-day -day lives of those Christians living in those churches. 
Um, many of you probably have seen, uh, it's common in some dispensational circles, I don't have any dispensational scholars that do it, but I know Tim LaHaye does it and others, to say that the seven churches really represent seven periods in church history. And so the church at Laodicea is the lukewarm church. That's the church that's on earth and Christ comes, you know, at the time of the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Seven churches. What's the number seven mean in completeness? The seven churches represent the church on earth between the entire time of Christ's first advent and his second. And the kind of stuff we see going on in those seven churches is going to be representative of what's going on in churches all around the world at any given time before Christ comes back. And uh, these churches are already present when John writes, and he's writing to them. Now, given the complexity of Revelation's literary structure, and I don't even want to touch this here, um, just remember that Revelation is an epistle. It's a letter that John is sending to these seven churches. But, it also contains prophecy. There are predictive elements in the book of Revelation. And when we say prophecy, we're not talking about Gene Dixon or Nostradamus. Um, you know, John isn't telling us about Napoleon or Hitler or things like that. He's not predicting specific individuals. Prophecy in the New Testament isn't kind of fortune-telling or, or future-gazing or whatever. Prophecy is the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Uh, the office of prophet in the New Testament is basically showing forth Christ from the Old Testament. So when we talk about prophecy here, keep in mind that to Christians, that's primarily the setting forth of Christ in his saving work, in his office as prophet, priest, and king. It also utilizes apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic is a genre that we have no uh, contemporary uh, genre like it. Apocalyptic is when you use images and pit the images in the foreground uh, against this kind of thing that's lurking in the background. In other words, you use word pictures to, and that are in the foreground to describe something that's contemporaneous that really are pictures of something that's much bigger. And so, for example, you get dragon, beast, false prophet. You get persecution from the Roman Empire in the present. But in apocalyptic literature, the persecution from the Roman Empire in the present is symptomatic of something much greater, a much bigger struggle. And so apocalyptic literature is not like any contemporary genre that we have. And in Revelation, then, John not only writes a letter, there's prophecy, there's also apocalyptic. And so I, I agree with uh, Greg Beale and Dennis Johnson that the old traditional interpretations of Revelation, futurism, preterism, historicism, and idealism really don't explain the complicated structure of the book of Revelation. Futurism, our dispensational friends say, you know, after, the, after chapter 4, verse 1, when John's told to come up here, that's the rapture. And you just kind of scratch your head and say, what? That's for another time. Uh, the rest of Revelation, then, is this description of what happens in the tribulation period on earth. So, the bulk of the book chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter uh, 21 and, and into 22, that's talking about the future. But John says this is about things soon to happen. Then you have preterists. And preterism, as I mentioned, is the generic, I, I don't want to make the distinction here between hyper-preterists and partial-preterists or any of that. 
I'm using preterism in its generic sense that the bulk of the New Testament is uh, prophecies already fulfilled and that the book of Revelation is written before AD 70. So when John speaks of a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet, he's speaking of somebody that's contemporary and somebody who appears on the scene before AD 70. And so this, according to uh, Revelation, according to Preterist, has to do largely with Nero and the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. That's equally problematic because it takes all this prophecy and eschatology and this apocalyptic and it pushes it all in the past and argues that it's all fulfilled. And then the book of Revelation now has no practical meaning for all intents and purposes to anybody living after AD 70. And so then you start to say, all right, if, if preterism is true, then why is this? this is, is this just a record of what happened in AD 70 or is there any contemporary application from this book? And preterists leave us with virtually no application from the book of Revelation. Then you have historicism, which is the really the, uh, as I mentioned last time, the Protestant position in eschatology. This is the view that says uh, the book of Revelation basically maps out the history of the future course of the age and that the culmination of the book is the revelation of Babylon the Great, this uh, harlot city, and the reformers universally identified that with... Rome. Then idealism is the view closest to Beale and uh, Johnson, which basically says that the book of Revelation is a series of uh, visions that uh, run cyclically and basically look at the interadvental period between Christ's first and second coming from a, a series of different perspectives. And so you get this idea of progressive parallelism that Revelation is kind of a cyclical uh, one sweep of history, another sweep of history, and another sweep of history. And I tend to be closer to idealism as do Johnson and Beale. But if you look at the visions carefully, they tend to intensify greatly toward the time of the end. And I think uh, that's Beale and Johnson's primarily concern about the, the classical idealism. It doesn't take sufficient notice of the intensification of these cycles as we go closer to the end of the age. And so in light of all of this, I think Dennis Johnson does a very good job of suggesting to us that Revelation can best be seen as a series of repeating visions, each of which depicts the interadvental age from a different perspective. Uh, he argues that in his book, Triumph of the Lamb. And if any of you want a very good, basic, yet thorough devotional introduction to the book of Revelation, get and read Triumph of the Lamb. It's just an outstanding commentary in the book of Revelation. You'll read this and you'll say, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. Beale's very scholarly. Johnson is not only uh, academically sound, there's also a pastoral uh, uh, devotional quality to it that makes it really, if you're going to buy one commentary in Revelation, get Dennis Johnson's. And so Johnson says, if you've got these series of repeated visions, it's like different camera angles on the same thing. You've all watched a football game televised and you know that if you follow the wires from the cameras out to the, the uh, truck with the director and the producer, you'll have a camera placed midfield. And that camera scans the course of action from midfield. You also have an end zone camera that looks at the field lengthwise one way, another camera other way. You have a camera that's high up that looks down on the field. And then you have isolated cameras that look at a particular play so one play will isolate the offensive line or the running back, the receivers or whatever. And then all of that comes together under the 
director's control and gives you your picture you see on the television. You can cut to this camera, that camera, or so on. Johnson's point is that Revelation does that exact same thing. The time reference in Revelation is Christ's first coming to his second coming. But each of these visions is like a different camera angle. If you're watching the end zone camera looking this way, you almost see a different game than you do from the, the camera in midfield. Or if you're watching you know, the new cameras on the wire looking down, it just looks entirely different. You get a whole different perspective on things than you do from the camera on the sideline or in the end zone. So each of these visions is just like one of these different camera angles. And you put them all together, and by the end of the book of Revelation, you've got a pretty good overview from a bunch of different perspectives of this repeating cycle that culminates in the uh, judgments that uh, arrive right before the end of, of the age. And so I think this is a, a very helpful way to look at uh, the book of Revelation. Now, let's read the passage um, we're going to spend most of our time on tonight. Uh, Revelation 13, uh, verses 1 through 17. 1 through 18, actually. John records the vision here, and he says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Blasphemy his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, 
And his number is 666. Now, the critical questions that we need to consider as we work through this chapter of Revelation are as follows. First question, what's the relationship between the dragon, Satan, and the beast? Second question is, who or what is the first beast? The obvious third question is, who or what is the second beast? And question number four, the fourth issue we need to tackle, what is the mark of the beast? Now, we start with both the Old Testament and historical um, first century background to that passage. I think it's very important, again, to uh, treat this in its redemptive historical context. And I think once you, you kind of set that in place and, and give yourself that big picture, the, the box top to the puzzle, as it were, the details start to make uh, much, much more sense. Now, the first thing that we'd have to say is that, and I point this out, just to, to be aware of this, I don't have time to develop it here, I do in my book. One thread in redemptive history is this historical outworking of the conflict between two seeds, Messiah and his opponent, and this opponent is often called the Antichrist. There is this war throughout redemptive history. You see it with Cain and Abel. You see it uh, with the God-hating empires uh, persecuting the people of God and so on. This goes on and on throughout redemptive history. This culminates here in Revelation chapter 13 with these particular individuals. But that thread runs throughout Scripture. I developed that a little bit when I've, you know, when I've got time in the book. And uh, I think you ought to kind of keep that in the back of the mind, back of your mind is one of the things that underlies this, this passage. A second thing to keep in mind is that when God's people are faithful to their covenant Lord, they are opposed by all those who resent this loyalty to Yahweh. Remember the Decalogue itself, the first table of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God as He commands. The minute Christians confess that, what does Caesar do if Caesar thinks of himself as a deity? Caesar doesn't like it because Caesar thinks that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is a deity. And so the very confession that there's one true and living God immediately puts Christians in a perspective where they are at odds against the surrounding culture and against those empires that rise up in opposition to God. And that uh, resentment comes to fruition in Revelation 13 in the form of this mysterious beast who is empowered by the dragon, who is Satan, for the purpose of waging war on the saints. Now, it's a very simple theological principle, but there's nothing Satan can do to harm God. You know, Luther's right. The devil's God's devil. The devil's not going to win. This is not some kind of a dualistic you know, spirit versus matter kind of thing where the outcome hangs in the balance. No, we have Satan, the wounded animal, mortally wounded, certain to die. But as you know, a mortally wounded animal certain to die is far more vicious and far more willing to be destructive than an animal who is feeling rather fine and who's rather well-fed and who is more interested in a nap. The image here is of a ferocious beast certain to die. And so this dragon then wages war upon the saints. Now Israel's prophets foretold of an end times figure, we saw this last time, who will be the supreme blasphemer and who will dare to make himself Yahweh's equal. This is found in Daniel 11, 
36 to 37, the Old Testament has already hinted to us that the time of the end, this little horn of Daniel chapter 11, uh, Daniel chapter 8 rather, and then this individual in Daniel chapter 11, this individual will be characterized by his blasphemy and by the elevation of himself to the status of God and will in turn persecute God's people when they fail to acknowledge him. So we've already been given this uh, imagery from the Old Testament and this certainly lies in the background of this chapter as it did in 2 Thessalonians as we saw last time. Now as we move into the New Testament era in John's vision, uh, and by vision I mean this series of repeating visions, the scene then shifts in the book of Revelation from Israel's history to the period of time that lies between Christ's first and second advents, from the time of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension until his return to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new at the end of the age. I think we can argue the case. I'll refer you to Greg Beale's commentary for great detail here that the book of Revelation scans that period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Uh, I'm a non-millenarian. I think when Christ returns, it'll be to judge the world and raise the dead and make all things new. I don't see a golden age on the earth. I see a contrast between things temporal and things eternal. Um, and so in the book of Revelation, you, you get John looking at this uh, period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And in this series of visions, sees this from all these different camera angles. And each one of these visions emphasizes a different thing, much as a camera angle would of a football game, see one thing midfield, another thing from the end zone, another thing from the press box, another from the handheld camera looking at isolated individuals. So this is the scope of John's vision and the time references from the time Christ conquers death in the grave until the time he returns at the end of the age to judge the world and raise the dead and make all things new. Now, while all of the symbols and images used by John are either taken from the Old Testament directly or echoes from the Old Testament, um, as I mentioned when we talked about our presuppositions, you know, every image in Revelation, no matter how weird it seems to us, has some very clear Old Testament reference point. So, while that's true, John's vision can't be divorced from its historical context. And what is that context? Well, this letter is written to people, to Christians in those seven churches, who are all of a sudden experiencing this rapidly intensifying persecution at the hands of Rome. That's the issue facing the Christians reading this letter and trying to work their way through this prophecy and uh, trying to make sense of this genre of apocalyptic. Rome has gone from being a rather benign government, as Paul tells us in AD 55. Uh, remember in Romans 13, Paul says the Roman government is a minister of God. Um, and Christians are to render unto Caesar and to pay their taxes. Now, I know when we get to heaven at the end of the age, we're going to find all those are scribal editions and are not in any of the best and original manuscripts. But until then, render under Caesar we will. Paul sees that government when he writes Romans as a minister of God. And yet by AD 95, John depicts that same government as a beast empowered by the dragon. And so John is explaining this changing historical situation that the Roman Empire, um, which was largely indifferent to religion, has all of a sudden 
become very hostile to Christianity. What's going on? We also can't understand John's vision apart from the personal influence of Nero. Nero reigned for but 14 years. He's born in 37. He dies in 68, probably commits suicide. Um, Nero clearly builds on the debauchery of Caligula. Caligula, as I mentioned, was the first Roman emperor to declare himself a deity. And Nero not only strengthens the imperial cult, but his personal depravity is in many ways beyond, script, beyond description. Just a couple of things. Nero has his brother, the potential, the, the older brother, the legal heir to the throne, killed at the behest of his own mother, with whom Nero had been sleeping, very likely. Then you have Nero arranging for his mother to be killed. Nero gets married. His wife becomes pregnant. He kicks her in the stomach, killing her and the child. Then he finds a young male servant who looks just like his wife and marries him in a very public ceremony. Then Nero has him killed. He rapes a vestal virgin, which is just a capital crime in Rome. He arranges orgies in which commoners and members of this royal, uh, the, the kind of the groupies hanging around the, the royals, along with the uh, Senate, uh, are together, which just is basically, you know, an attack on all Roman society because now you, you remove all those distinctions between uh, ruling classes and, and poor. Nero even stages a play where he gives birth. Uh, everything about this guy mocks the natural order. He, he lives to mock the natural order. Meanwhile, he's spending money like the American Congress and ends up bankrupting uh, the country. Uh, there's, there's little money left for capital projects. And as you know, uh, Rome is the pioneer of, of civil architecture. Rome is building roads and aqueducts. And, you know, Rome is bringing great uh, prosperity and humanity to the uh, ancient world. Just look at the Roman baths and, and the, the cisterns. and the, It's amazing. Nero just puts that to an end. Under Nero, the army start to lose. Uh, there's not enough money to train uh, so the emperor, the, the empire is going to, to vinegar uh, under Nero. And then under Nero's reign, both Paul and Peter are put to death. Christians are turned into torches and burned in Nero's garden. They're put in alabaster pots up to their waist, which are filled with pitch. The pitch is then set on fire. You have Christians thrown to the lions... Uh, if any of those specials come up on A&E or Discovery Channel that do the architecture of the Colosseum, you'll watch one of those. It's just absolutely amazing how they have a, a system of, of elevators where on the floor of the Colosseum, you'll have a, a group of people ready to be et or a gladiator ready to fight them and they can, through a system of pulleys, all of a sudden bring two or three lions or tigers right up onto the floor without any, where they come from, that kind of, it's just remarkable um, how this worked. And Nero, at one point, took a young Christian woman, stripped her nude, threw her on the horns of a bull, tied her on the bull, and just mocked her, her chastity. It just goes on and on and on. Nero is as bad as it gets. There just is nobody as depraved as Nero. And he strengthens the imperial cult, but at the same time, bankrupts the nation, leaves Rome in shambles when he dies. And after Nero's death, rumors begin to spread that Nero's going to return from the dead. 
And that sets in motion the so-called Nero myth, and that Nero myth can be found lying in the background of the book of Revelation. We've already read that the beast was going to suffer a mortal wound, and after it suffers a mortal wound, it does what? Comes back. So, this is already kind of hinted at by a popular Roman superstition that held that Nero had indeed died, but that he was going to resurrect and come back even worse than, than before. So, we have to take very seriously then this dramatic transformation of the Roman Empire from the time of Paul, in which Rome is indifferent to Christianity, to becoming a God-hating empire uh, bent on persecuting Christians throughout the empire. Nero's uh, reign of terror on Christians was pretty much limited to Rome, but by 95, Christians living in Asia Minor now faced the wrath of Domitian. Um, It was very common during the time of Domitian, for statues of the emperors now to be in every city. If you went into the Agur, the marketplace of that city, uh, there would be a little uh, incense burner. And to gain access to the Agur, what were you required to do? Bow before the statue, throw a little incense in there to go conduct your business, to sell, you know, set up your, your tables, do whatever it is you're going to do. Could Christians do this? No. Every coin you use, and you see from that period, has a picture of the emperor stashed on it where the emperor is depicted as a deity or called a deity. So, by the time of Domitian, this has become uh, standard fare in Asia Minor and Christians are now really coming under intense persecution uh, just like Christians had in Rome uh, under Nero. So, all these points have to be kept in mind then as we... Try and answer our four questions. Okay, well, the time we've got left, let's uh, tackle those four questions and uh, see how we can make sense of this. Now, the first question deals with the relationship between the dragon and the beast. And answering that question, I think we'll answer the second question, who or what is the beast? Now, in Revelation 13, verse 2, the second part of that verse, John tells us, that when the beast rises out of the sea, it does so because it's empowered by the dragon. Now, we know who the dragon is. That's not a tough identification. The dragon is Satan. That, one, that one's pretty easy. Who is it then that transforms the beast into this anti-Christian persecutor? It is Satan. Now, in Revelation 13, I'm sure you've noticed there are three enemies of Christ depicted here in this vision. The first the dragon who is Satan. The second, the beast from the sea, is the Roman Empire. Uh, If you live in Asia Minor, how did Rome manifest its power? Rome was this mercantile nation that ruled not only the roads and the highways that they built, but Rome ruled the ocean. Rome produced commerce. uh, Amazing the amount of ships that traveled that area. Um, every one of those cities along the coast of, of Turkey was a major seaport. Uh, so, the beast who comes from the sea is Rome, while the second beast in Asia Minor, the false prophet, as identified in chapter 16, clearly points out a false trinity. There are three persons. There's a dragon, a first beast, and a second beast. So, right away, as Christians, we had to pick up on the fact that this is some kind of a satanic imitation of the Blessed Trinity. And so the appearance of these three figures and their overt blasphemy then 
is the final battle of the ongoing war between these two seeds. This began all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And it continues now. And so when these three beasts arise to persecute God's people and wage war on them, we have this imagery of a counterfeit trinity. We have this imagery of a last battle between uh, this uh, satanic seed and the people of God. And so it becomes very, very clear then that this is the final battle. And by the time John records this vision, don't forget that according to the New Testament, Satan has already been defeated. Uh, Colossians 2.15 tells us that he has been made a public spectacle of, uh, on the cross, that Jesus' death uh, and defeats him. He has no claim on the saints. We know when the disciples came, remember, uh, back when Jesus sent them out to preach, the 70, and they came back, and what did they tell Jesus? Master, we saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So we get the sense then that as Christ comes, His kingdom begins to expand. Satan is already being defeated. When Jesus cast out demons, we see the, kind of the initial sense of this defeat. When Jesus dies on the cross, He triumphs over Satan because He breaks the power of sin. When He raises from the dead, He overturns the curse. And so the dragon's defeat is certain. There is no sense whatsoever in the book of Revelation that this story is going to turn out any way other than with the victory of Christ and His people. There's no sense in the book of Revelation that we might lose. It's just crystal clear that Christ has already defeated Satan before John even has his vision. So the book of Revelation then is a, a picture to us of this enraged and frustrated dragon who defeated and who can't hurt God, instead now seeks to wage war on the saints through the agency of the state. It's Satan who raises up the beast for the purpose of waging war on God's people. Now you're talking about economic and military power that can be used against the people of God. Christians being persecuted for their assertion that Jesus is Lord and their refusal to assert that Caesar is Lord. That's the imagery here. So, when we look at the identity of the first beast, as we'll see shortly, it's clearly Rome, we also see there's a counterfeit trinity in mind and there's a counterfeit redemption offered by these two beasts because the first beast suffers a mortal wound and it rises again. Nero seemed to, ruin, to, to bankrupt Rome, left it in shambles. Christians went through this time of persecution, probably were relieved that it stopped or died down. Here comes Domitian and it starts all over again and now it's even worse than it was before. It's spread everywhere and it's much more intense. So you get this, this as Christ died and rose again, so the beast is wounded, rises again, Christ ascended into heaven and He's going to rule and reign. So you get this satanic rule and reign through the form of the anti-Christian state. And Christ is going to do what at the end of the age? He's going to return. And so the beast will have his own parousia, his own return also at the end of the age. And so what John has done is to set out basically an imitation, not only of the Trinity, but also of Christ's death and resurrection and second coming. The beast has that same pattern 
in the book of Revelation that parodies Christ's. Now, the identity of the first beast is whoops, pretty easily determined. Um, the ten heads, uh, ten horns, seven heads, blasphemous names, the fact that it resembles a leopard, has feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, all that takes us back to Daniel. And we know from Daniel 7, 7 to 14, that this is the Roman Empire. And that Roman Empire is now doing overtly the bidding of the dragon. And that is the crisis, because during the time of Paul, that empire was a minister of God. Now it is a God-hating, church-persecuting empire. Now, this beast is ferocious. Who's like him? Who can wage war against him? But the beast suffers this fatal wound. It's healed, and we read that the whole world is astonished. To Christians, it looks like Rome can't be defeated. It looked like it was going to die off. It looked like this persecution was going to end. And now it's back with a vengeance. And so this obvious parody of the death and resurrection of Jesus then is set against the backdrop of Rome's seemingly miraculous recovery of its power and its prestige after Nero. Nero left the place in a mess, but under Domitian, Rome is victorious, Rome is wealthy, and Rome's emperors are calling themselves deities and demanding that Christians, in fact, worship them. And so what Richard Balcom says, what's in view here is a deification of economic and military power. This is the deification of the state. We don't want to have a political discussion tonight, but that should warn you greatly uh, about a number of things. Now, once restored to its former power and its glory, the beast now begins to speak blasphemous things for 42 months. And I developed this in the book. I don't have time to do this tonight, but I think the 42 months, uh, the times, times and half a times, the 1,260 days, all of that found in Daniel 7 and 12 and in Revelation 11 and 12 is a reference to the whole interadvental period. Um, remember the 70 weeks of Daniel? In the 70th week, the final week of that prophecy, the Messiah is cut off in the middle of the 70th week, which leaves how much of that time left? Three and a half. So the New Testament looks back on that kind of left-hanging part of the 70th week and now applies that to the entire interadvental age. And I, like I say, I've got the exegetical argument for that in my, in my book. Now, as Jesus has died and then been raised from the dead to rule and reign... The beast mocks Christ's death and resurrection with his own rule until he's finally destroyed by Jesus at our Lord's second advent. And so this means that the Roman Empire is clearly in John's mind, but it also tells us that Rome does not exhaust the meaning of John's vision. Whenever the dragon empowers the state to do his bidding, which is to wage war on the saints, that state, that government, that nation becomes an anti-Christian beast doing the bidding of its master. All of that is to say, Rome then is the type, the picture of all God-hating anti-Christian nations throughout the entire inter-advental period. If you want to look at a, a beast, turn on the news. Any Islamic state that arrests Christians for having Bibles, for worshiping together, that state is a beast, according to John. Nazi Germany is a beast. Anytime Satan controls the powers of government and uses that to persecute the church and persecute the faithful, that is what John's talking about. In John's day, it was Rome. 
But what John's telling us in this apocalyptic literature, Rome's in the foreground, but there are bigger things behind. John is warning us that when you see Rome doing to the church now, that's going to happen again and again and again until Christ comes back. That beast is going to appear to be wounded and it's going to manifest itself all over again. And it's what it does is it wages war on the saints. And it's got armies and jails and judges and courts and soldiers. And it can prevent you from buying and selling. It controls commerce. That's what John's warning us about. And so, just as Jesus promised to return again at the end of the age, the beast will stage his own parousia of sorts. Satan will be released from the abyss at the end of the thousand years. And we should expect one final beast which is far worse than all his predecessors, including Rome. What John's saying is, you want to know what this final manifestation of evil will be? Look at the Roman Empire in the first century, already persecuting Christians, already raging war on the saints. That's the picture of what uh, we will see again and again and again until one last and final manifestation of satanic power. Now, in all of these cases, the state which does the bidding uh, gives the dragon what he craves. They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So, the end result here is when people worship the state and its leader or the state, they, in effect, are worshiping Satan. So, you know, get, your, get out of your mind the image of a little girl in a bed that's rattling and she's spitting up green stuff that looks like pea soup. Uh, Satan's manifestation is a little more powerful than that. Think of men in military uniforms knocking on your door, going through your house and looking for Bibles, and then throwing you in the who's gal. That's what John was warning us about. The state using its power to persecute the people of God. That's what's going on here. Who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? And so the beast then craves that confession, Caesar's Lord, and it hates nothing more than that Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. And so Christians are hated and persecuted because they won't worship the state or its leader. We can't worship the state. We can't worship the state's leader. So that brings us then to Revelation 13 and the identity of the second beast. Now, note the stress upon the fact that this beast is also a parody of Jesus, the Lamb of God, as well as that Lamb who was slain to save God's people. He's the one who looks like a lamb, remember? But he's really not. And so the purpose of this beast, who is later called the false prophet, is to ensure, secure the worship of the first beast. This beast is given the ability to perform miracles, was to see the world's inhabitants into worshiping the first beast. It's exactly what we saw at the end of Second Thessalonians. The satanic power deceiving people into worshiping the beast in its image. Uh, if you're back in the first century, what's the image of the beast? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the Old Testament image. The contemporary image for you is a statue of Domitian outside the gate of the marketplace. So, how much of we want to make out of the animation of the statues or not, I don't think that's necessarily what John's talking about, but that's certainly interesting. But at the time of John, the second beast is most likely this commune of Asia. Uh, this was a group of mayors and civic leaders in Asia Minor who actively promoted emperor worship. Basically, you know the story. Um, you live in Ephesus. Your aqueduct's leaking. You've got holes in your road. 
The way to get it fixed is to send a delegation to Rome, meet with the Senate, maybe an audience of the emperor, and in exchange for all of that good stuff you get from Rome, what do you do? We'll build a statue and a temple in honor of the emperor. And so these basically are bureaucrats, government officials who are out encouraging emperor worship, building temples, building statues, doing all that kind of stuff, basically eliminating Christians from the marketplace, preventing them from buying and selling, and in exchange for that, they're getting public works in their cities. It's the old quid pro quo. We know how it works. It works then the same as it did then as it does now. Now, as William Hendrickson puts it in his great little commentary on Revelation, it's now kind of out date, but he says the first beast is in some sense symbolic of Satan's hands, while the second is symbolic of Satan's head. But a better way to say it is the first beast is representative of civic authority, while the second beast is false religion. The application we draw from that is the first beast that arises out of the sea are the police, the SS, the Gestapo. The second beast is that deceptive power that gets us to actually worship the state or its leader. Um, a contemporary illustration, one that, that I was thought about just the other day, uh, Hirohito during World War II. The Japanese worshipped their emperor as a deity. And it's fascinating that of all the countries that were the hardest to Christianize, Korea, Christian missionaries did very well there. Christian missionaries have never done well in Japan. How much of that's tied to emperor worship? So this is the kind of stuff we see in Rome that, that is still around today. Now, that means that the image is not exhausted by events of the first century. Preterists are just wrong to say this was all fulfilled by the time of Nero, nor can we push it off into the distant future as dispensationalists do. The preterist notion that the first beast is Rome under Nero, while the second beast is a reference to the false prophet that arises in Jerusalem at the time of the destruction of the temple just doesn't fit the facts at hand. This is much more likely later. It's much more likely uh, under Domitian as opposed to Nero. And I argue that in the book in some detail, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. I also think it's better to see in this vision a picture of first century Rome's imperial power. And that power of Rome serves as a warning to Christians in all ages of what happens when the state and its leaders do the dragon's bidding. So let's then move on to hit a related theme, and that is the return of the beast in Revelation chapter 17. This will help us understand what John means by this second beast. Now, the image in Revelation 17, and let's read those passages 9 to 14. Revelation 17, 9 through 14. Because these factor in greatly to our understanding of Revelation 13. This call, says John, for a mind, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which this woman is seated. What city has seven mountains or seven hills? Rome. That's how Rome's identified. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other's not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not 
it is an eighth king who belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings that have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for an hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their authority and power to the beast. And they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is the Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. This image again is an apocalyptic image associated with the time of the end. And so the image here then is drawn from Daniel 7. It's the scene of this fourth beast there being crushed by the Ancient of Days at the time of the end. And all of this seems to imply a return of the Roman beast, an eighth king, at the time of the end. Now John's reference to seven heads and ten horns is, I think, not tied to a specific emperor. If you read the literature on the book of Revelation, it's huge trying to figure out which emperors these guys are and what order they occur and so on. I think Carrot and Beale are wise to point out that this image, along with the eighth king, really does belong to the time of the end when Satan is released and then empowers the two beasts. This, I think, is the beast's parousia. As the beast appears to die, comes back, and then comes again, Beale points out, and I think this is brilliant, that the beast's imitation of Christ will be shown to be a sham in the end. Whereas Christ's resurrection results in being alive forevermore, the beast's resurrection results in his destruction. When the beast comes back and is manifest yet, yet again, it is so that the beast and all that he represents might be destroyed, and that fits exactly with what we saw last time in Second Thessalonians. Now, there are all kinds of problems tying these seven kings to historic Roman emperors. Which emperor do you start with and which emperors are included? There's a whole bunch of emperors that rule for such a short, for such a short period of time, it's hard to know whether they should even be counted in the list. And with which one do you start? Uh, Caesar Augustus? I mean, it's, it's really hard to know. I think the symbolism of the seven kings, uh, followed by an eighth king, points to the completion of this interadvental period while Satan's false kingdom opposes the kingdom of God. In other words, when these seven kings come and go, there's going to be an eighth king. And that eighth king is the eighth king is someone we might commonly call the Antichrist. So, it's likely that John's point that the same beast that's persecuting Christians in the first century reappears. It has a, a fake parousia at the time of the end in what is obviously a mimicking of Christ's second coming. Now, Revelation 17 depicts this harlot Babylon, uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of all abominations. John ties this directly to Rome, verse 9, because this is the city of seven hills that, uh, which rules over the kings of the earth. What other city could this be but Rome? Now, this is important because that's the connection John readers certainly made to this. But Preterists, on the other hand, say, no, 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 this isn't Rome. This is apostate Jerusalem. Because remember, this has to be before AD 70. And so, uh, you look at all these images in the Old Testament of Jerusalem becoming a kind of virtual Babylon. All those passages are cited by our preterist friends who will in turn say, no, 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 no this, is, this is Jerusalem. But Rome is a city with seven hills. Rome is a city that rules the nations. The reason preterists have to argue this is because they've already assumed that AD 70 is the second coming. They've got to explain this away, and so they tie it to Jerusalem. And I have a long section in this on my book. 
I don't doubt for a second that everybody in those churches who heard this letter read, heard city with seven hills that rules the kings of the earth, what on, on earth are they going to think of other than Rome? This is the city of Rome. And so preterists, I think, have a very, very difficult time with this. Dispensationalists also have a problem with this because they say this is a literal revived Roman Empire at the end that's in league with this apostate church. You've all seen Dave Hunt's book, The Woman That Rides the Beast. You know, The problem with that is, what about the people in the first century? And what about the city with the seven hills? That's Rome. Then, first century. That's not Rome at the time of the end. So our dispensational friends, I think, and our preterist friends fall short. John's speaking of Rome in the first century, and he's talking about Rome's ability to rule and seduce the nations. And the image here then is the kings of the earth committing this spiritual fornication, uh, fornication with this Roman harlot. They give the woman the wealth and power she craves. In exchange, what do they get? Continued commerce and safety and safe passage. And so it's a, it's a perfect relationship. And so while John is speaking of first century Rome, Rome does not fully exhaust the meaning of John's vision because Rome and its emperor cult, symbolic of this Babylon harlot, this city tries and it tries and it tries with all its wealth and all its beauty and all its glamour, but it never can attain what it wants and that is the glory of the heavenly city which even now is coming down from heaven. And so I think it's best to say that first century Rome is symbolic of the city of man that exists throughout the course of this present evil age. There's always this kind of a city on earth that lives for power, lives for glory, and will do anything to keep that. And there are always people who will love money so much they'll be willing to be seduced and engage in this spiritual fornication with this harlot for the money. Greed always seems to win in the end. But what's the fate of this Babylonian harlot? The merchants of the earth turn on her, kill her, burn it down, and then they all weep because the, the cash cow is finally dead. And they mourn bitterly when the city goes up in smoke. Now, I think the interpretive key to this whole section in Revelation is verses 9 to 11 of chapter 17 when John speaks of this eighth king yet to come. And that points us in the direction that the church must endure this persecution from the six kings who have already come and gone and then from the seventh king who is the current oppressor when John writes this before an eighth and final king comes at the time of the end. And this eighth king then is that one spoken of by Daniel and John. It's the final manifestation of the beast who is destroyed by Jesus Christ at his coming. So all of that is to say... There will be, if my interpretation of this is correct, if Reformed Amillennialism holds water, there will be one last manifestation of the beast, far greater than all have gone before. His manifestation will be in order that he's destroyed by Christ at his second coming. So, my estimation is that in the days before Christ comes back, we will see an outbreak of satanic uh, persecution of the church as manifested by the state and its leader to a degree we have never, ever seen before. And Christians have speculated whether this will be Rome or Islam, or it could even be a secular state that's so tired of religious wars that it forbades all religion altogether. And this could take all kinds of conceivable forms. And as Voss tells us 
you know, don't even try to figure it out because the best interpreter of this passage is its fulfillment. So let's not make the mistake of becoming Reformed Hal Lindsay's and trying to, to guess. It, it's okay to speculate. I mean, there's a time for it, you know. Maybe after the lecture we can hang out and have coffee and guess. But leave it at that because we won't know until it happens. Last question. We are almost out of time. So we'll wrap up here very, very quickly. What is the mark of the beast? Uh, I cover this in great detail in my book. I'm just going to skim it here. Prioris tell us that this number of a man uh, is that of Nero. And using gematria, which is the numerical value of letters, they argue we can calculate the numeric value of 666 and then arrive at the name or title Nero Caesar. There are all kinds of problems with that because it's very easy to go from a name to the number, but if you just had the numbers, you would never be able to calculate a person. You can kind of, in other words, pick a name and then see if the numbers fit. But if you just worked with the numbers, you'd never arrive at a name and know for sure who it was. So there's a bit of methodological funny business going on with that. And by the way, no one had even argued for that until 1831. None of the church fathers made that identification. That being said, this may be Nero, for all we know. But uh, we shouldn't ignore, as, as most folks do, the theological importance of the number, which is very important in the context of this vision. You know, Nero may be the first person who's a manifestation of 666, John's point is, he's not going to be the last. Now, dispensationalists, bless their hearts, always tie this to future technology. They're worried about microchips or the Internet or, or something. Um, I've got a, a whole collection of this in my, um, my, my pilot home. Um, you've got Hal Lindsey worried that the product barcodes are 666. Chuck Smith had a fertilizer bag that he found that had the number 666 that was freaking him out because it was from Germany. That was going to be the common mark. You, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Dispensationalists miss the point when they're preoccupied with the future technology and that this is only the number of a future antichrist. And then they argue to take the mark is to be eternally condemned. If you haven't seen the movie Left Behind, you need to see it. This, is, this gave rise to this whole Christian subculture. And you've got you know, guys in trucks driving around looking for Christians who didn't go in the rapture, and they've got 666 on their car door, their, their van doors, and they catch Christians and they hold them down and they take a look like an old grocery store you know, marker and they hold them, put the mark on them, their hand to their forehead. This is kind of dispensational lore, and as well intended as it is, it misses the whole point. Now, that interpretation fails utterly because it pushes off into the future what was an imminent threat facing the Christians in John's original audience. It's not just limited to the time of the end. Christians were already experiencing this. The emperor cult was everywhere in Asia Minor in AD 95. The emperor's image was on coins. It was on documents. The seal to, on any legal document had the emperor's impression and an affirmation of his deity, his shragma, his mark was on it, and there were statues of the emperor everywhere, and Christians were forced to basically you know, kiss the statue and bow before it, put a little incense in front of it, or else not buy or sell. And so the mark of the beast has to be seen then against the, the ancient practice of branding or tattooing slaves on their hands or foreheads, which is the sign, the symbol of servitude. The image is that those who possess this mark of the imperial cult of the state, their servants and therefore property of the beast of the state, that serves the dragon. 
Let me give you a contemporary illustration of the mark of the beast. That's what we're talking about. Some symbolic reference that says the state and or its leader is divine. That's what John is warning us about. Now, the mark, the shragma, probably uh, refers to the official stamp or mark of the Roman Empire. When John uses the word shragma mark in Greek, that was also the common word for the seal on legal documents. So that association is probably important. John has already told us about the church in Pergamon that already was facing persecution. Christians were living in poverty. They couldn't buy or sell. And one of their number, Antipas, had already been killed by the Roman government and put to death. So this is already going on. Now, the theological implications of this number have to be duly considered. And you know, whether you want to spend all your time trying to pin this on Nero or you know, a lot even try to pin on Ronald Wilson Reagan, you know, six letters, three names, you know, it just goes on and on. I think people miss the point when they try to identify this with a particular individual. That it just misses the point. Because the theological implications become very clear what this is. The number six is always the number of man. And it falls short of the number of completion, which is seven. Can man ever attain deity? No. And throughout the book of Revelation, this counterfeit trinity is trying to do what? Claim deity and trying to redeem the earth. It never can. It never will. It will always fall short. And so the triple repetition of the number 666 point to an attempt to attain perfection, but it always falls short. And therefore, 666 is the number of, of, of perfect imperfection. Or being perfectly imperfect. Six is also the number of the days of creation. And so the one who takes this mark works endlessly always working, but's never able to enjoy the blessings of the Sabbath rest, the seventh day, which is symbolic of heaven. And so the image depicted then of someone who works endlessly as a slave to either sin or to Caesar, but who never attains rest, never gets to the goal, and never can get to the goal. And so that number, 666, stands off in marked contrast to the divine number. Indeed, it is a mockery of it. And so throughout the book of Revelation, Christians are said many times in the book to be sealed with something, uh, which is likely, I think, a reference to baptism. And so the mark of the beast then uh, may in fact be the equivalent of the rejection of baptism in the case of those who commit apostasy because of the threat of death at the hand of the beast. There are people who are so worried that they're, they're going to die, that they renounce their baptism. They renounce their faith in Christ in order to eat. They decide that food is better than... And it's a tough choice when you're being persecuted. And you think Christians face that today? Darfur? And it just goes on continuously. Or, perhaps, to a rejection of Christ's lordship to the acceptance of Caesar's lordship. The, the Signing and sealing the book of Revelation is an important theme. And it just has to jump out at you that Satan has his own signing and sealing, whereas Christians have theirs being sealed in Christ, having Christ's name written on them, all of that language. This is the exact parody in the beast. And it's either apostasy, uh, renunciation of baptism, or renunciation of faith in Christ, or else it's the rejection of Christ's lordship and the acceptance of Caesar's lordship. Can somebody who swears allegiance to Hitler also confess Jesus as Lord? 
He can't do it. That's the kind of thing John's talking about. And so our final point then is this makes attempts to tie this number to a particular person or the technology to be used uh, at the time of the end is just off base because to the extent that you ignore the theological meaning of the number, to the extent you miss, I think, John's original point. But we have covered a lot of ground very, very quickly. And again, just want to remind you, this is a short excised portion of chapter on the beast, the dragon, the false prophet in the book, and you can read it in some detail then. And, and um, this kind of gives you a once-over lightly of a, a lengthy exegetical chapter. Any questions? Stand at the mic and fire away. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to ignore the uh, theological implications here, but I, I would want to know your evaluation of this uh, viewpoint that the first uh, beast is Nero and the second beast is Domination, false prophet, and that uh, John's sort of playing on the whole uh, myth about Nero rising again, and that's why he has, uh, you know, 666 and he signs it to a man, uh, you know. I'm not ignoring the corporate dimensions here, I'm just saying, no. you know, for, I think this is, uh, I think it's Thielman's view, so, yeah. Thielman? Yeah. See, so he, he said it's the first one's Nero and the second one's Domination, and that John's playing on the right man. Uh, that is not an unacceptable interpretation by any stretch of the imagination, and I think that that would be merit that would merit some uh, further work. That wouldn't that wouldn't be a problematic interpretation at all. But I do think the uh, if you take the late date, as I think the social problems and the, the the identification of the seven churches, the problems facing those churches seems to place it much later. You could have John looking back and having Nero replaced by Domitian, which would fit with the death and resurrection motif. But I, I do think the commune of Asia is much more uh, likely, and that is, in some odd sense, tied to Domitian because they're, in effect, doing Domitian's bidding. So th that is pretty close. Uh, if you're right, and... Revelation should be dated to about 95. That would put John maybe in his 80s. It puts John and in his... Um, he's in the retirement community. You think there's a real strong likelihood that he would have made it to his 80s? I mean, especially considering that they didn't live as long as, as we tend to now? The question about the age of John, is it's purely theoretical. How long can someone live? Um, church history... Uh, has been replete with recount, uh, accounts of John being a very young man. Um, we see this in the Gospels when John and Peter are on their way to the tomb and John beats Peter by a long stretch and reminds Peter of it twice. So there is some sense that John is a fair bit younger than Peter. Um, yeah, I think, I think church tradition is, is not of one on this, but certainly the evidence tends to argue that John was the elder in Ephesus and was indeed an old man, and uh, the church was aware that this was one of the disciples of Jesus and he had uh, some significance and some uh, importance in the early church. And, and tradition says he was elderly. Not impossible to be 80 years old in the first century. It's against the statistics, though. 